Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, the book of Ephesians, as we consider the work and wealth of God in Jesus Christ in our study of this book. This morning, we will continue in our little detour that we're taking, and I'll explain that after I read the text that has launched us on this detour. Ephesians chapter 1, we already studied these verses, but this is what had us to take a little bit of an excursus. Ephesians 1, 4, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. As I said, we've taken a bit of a detour on arrival of this passage to look more intently at the subject that these verses raise. They are a subject that most people in church history, at least uh, from like the second century on, have wrestled with. The subject is God's sovereign grace in salvation. Paul references it as exhibit A in his discussion of the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. When we become Christians, we're given a whole itemized list of, of, of blessings And the very first one that Paul unpacks for us in Ephesians is that of being chosen by God in verse 4. Before the world began, and also being predestined to adoption as sons in verse 5. That brings up this issue, these issues that the church has talked about for so long. If you have been a Christian for very long, I can almost promise that I'm confident that we've all wrestled with this. Sovereign grace, election, predestination, effectual calling. These are all attached to what the church has historically called the doctrines of grace. I love that designation, the doctrines of grace. These are doctrines that come out of God's gracious gifts to mankind, none of which surpass that of salvation. So the doctrines of grace are the doctrines that flow out of God's giving grace in salvation to men. As we've studied these doctrines that really became popularized in an argument that began in Holland just after the the first wave of the Reformation between the Remonstrants or the Arminians and the Calvinists. And because of that, a fight kind of went back and forth and they tried to systematize and organize their thoughts in in five points, the Arminians did, against Calvinism. As a response to that, the Calvinists said, "We we will give you our response to your criticism. And out of that response came this little acronym TULIP. And that's what we've kind of pulled the car over to look at in this passage in Ephesians 1. TULIP. T, total depravity. U, unconditional election. L, limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. And P, perseverance of the saints. 
This is one historical way or designation to understand these doctrines. But again, I far prefer the idea of the doctrines of grace. And even looking at these words that form TULIP or the acronym, they, I understand why they were written the way they were in response to the criticisms against the Calvinists in Holland, but they're not always the very best or most descriptive understanding of these doctrines. And so we've kind of taken a little different tack. These are not all original with me. I've stitched them together from various places and added my own flair to understand how we can get our mind around these doctrines of grace, which are alluded to in Ephesians 1, 4 to 6. If there's ever a place in the life of our church where we would stop and study these doctrines as a, as a Bible study, as, as a theological discourse, it is out of this passage that we've seen in these three verses, Ephesians 1, 4 to 6. We began a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago actually, in looking at five doctrinal convictions that provide security in God's salvation. These are intended by, by God, these doctrines are to, to help us enjoy security and, and peace and comfort, not to give us a theological Rubik's Cube that we have to figure out. Just a quick review, we started by looking at total inability or man's fallen state. Now that's called total depravity in the tulip designation. Total inability, very quickly, very uh, uh, simply, this just means man is absolutely and totally unable because of his sinfulness, his deadness in his sin, to respond to God. Romans 3, there is none righteous, not even one, none who understands, none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, none who does good, not even one. In Ephesians 2, we'll get there in just a few months, Ephesians 2 says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. No one seeks God, all are dead, therefore we are totally unable to respond to God, totally unable, totally unwilling to respond to God in salvation. Because of that total inability, that puts us in a position of being saved either completely by God's prerogative or being stuck on our own. Which leads us, secondly, to electing choice. This is God's electing choice, his prerogative to save, also known in the TULIP acronym as unconditional grace. There's a divine logic here. If indeed man is as bad and in as much trouble as the Bible doctrine of total inability indicates, then salvation must originate with God. It also must be sustained by God and fulfilled in glorification by God. Since no one seeks God, no one uh, pursues him, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, God's electing choice must be initiated for anyone to believe. If you look back in the text, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, he chose us, verse 5, he predestined us. In other words, salvation is completely in God's hands, and praise God it is. If salvation were left up to your and my choice, no one would have chose rightly. Which brings us this morning to the third, or the L in TULIP. It's called limited atonement. I I far prefer definite atonement, or God's particular redemption. So what we're going to do for the next few minutes is just have a a good old-fashioned Bible study. Uh, you can take notes. Again, these notes will be posted tomorrow on the website if you miss some of these, 
these passages. But here's where we have to park our minds on this issue, okay? This subject in particular, limited atonement, has split churches, has split denominations, has caused literally wars to break out. It did in Holland. And for the record, I am not going to attempt to bring resolution in the next few moments to a doctrine that has been debated in the church for thousands of years, but I do want you to have confidence in it. In order to start here, I just need to beg that you all embrace the two concepts of humility and mystery. Humility. You will not perceive or accept the doctrine of definite atonement without a degree of humility where you understand that I am a sinful man, God is a holy, all-sovereign God, and without him I'm lost. There's a humility that says God must be God and I am recognizing, full recognition, that I am a sinful, wicked, dead soul. But also the concept of mystery. There are some of these nuances of limited atonement that can, that can just fry your mind unless you just believe what the Bible says and let God speak as he has spoken. This is the point of Calvinism that trips people up the most. In fact, you've heard many people say, well, I'm, I'm a four-point Calvinist. And what they mean by that almost always is they reject limited atonement. Or I'm a three-and-a-half-point Calvinist, which I've heard so much, which means they reject limited atonement. And I don't know what other, when they chop in half, but it sure sounds good. The doctrine of grace called limited atonement is clearly the most controversial, unquestionably the most controversial and maybe the most misunderstood of all the doctrines of grace. As I said, I far prefer the term definite atonement or even actual atonement or particular redemption or intentional atonement more than the term limited atonement. And I'll explain that in just a moment. Now, I want to do three things this morning. Three simple things. Uh, if you want a little, little sub-point of the outline, this is what it's going to be. I'm going to clarify the distortion of the doctrine. Secondly, I'm going to justify the doctrine biblically. And thirdly, I'm going to answer some key objections. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. Clarify the distortion of the doctrine. It has been distorted. Secondly, justify the doctrine biblically. And thirdly, answer some key objections. So let's look first of all clarifying the distortion of this doctrine, clarifying the distortion of this doctrine. Again, it's historically been known as L, limited atonement. This description of that doctrine that summarizes what the Bible teaches about Christ's death, death is so critically important. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection accomplished something. To explain that the atonement was in any way limited, though, does not suggest that the death of Christ was in any way of limited value. That's what the accusation is. How can the atonement be limited if it was the precious blood of Christ? No, no, that's not what is meant when, when theologians describe the atonement as having limitations. And just a little record for the foot, a footnote, unless you are a universalist, meaning you believe everyone goes to heaven, you have an atonement that's limited. 
It is limited to not extend to those, for example, going to hell. It's limited, for example, not to apply to the devil and the demons. So before you say, I don't believe in limited atonement, stop and remember that your atonement, unless you're a universalist, is definitionally limited. It's not applied to everyone. However, the death of Jesus is of infinite, unlimited power. Can I, can I be any clearer on that? So the question before us is simply this, trying to unpack the mystery of this a little bit and understand the, the distortion of it and undistort it in our minds. First of all, what did Jesus accomplish by his death? What did his death actually do? Or did Christ's death make salvation just possible? Did it do something? Or did it make salvation just possible? Did Christ's death accomplish salvation for those whom he predestined and chose? Or did Christ's death just lay a, basically a smorgasbord and, and a for sale uh, uh, kind of a, a yard sale in front of everybody for salvation and say, you can have it if you want it? Was it an actual accomplished redemption or was it a possible redemption? That's the key question in understanding limited atonement. Did Christ's death free up grace or did Christ's death apply grace? Boyce and Riken write this in their excellent book on the doctrines of grace. Quote, if God planned from eternity to save one portion of the human race and not the other, which is what election affirms, then it is a contradiction to say that he sent his son to die for those he previously determined not to save in the same way he sent his son to die for those he actually determined to save. Let's get logical for a minute, okay? There are only three options. Option one, Jesus' death was not an actual atonement. It only made atonement possible. So it just is like this giant bank that you could go cash in salvation if you wanted. It's there for the, for the grabbing, but it's, it's up to you. It was a possible atonement, not an actual one. Option number two, Jesus' death was an actual atonement for the sins of those who God elected and chose. Option number three, Jesus' death was an actual atonement for the sin of all people, resulting in everyone being saved. This is also called, as I said, universalism. Well, we can quickly eliminate the third, unless you just completely disbelieve the Bible. There is no possibility that the Bible teaches universalism that everyone will be saved because the Bible talks often and deeply about hell. Uh, Jesus spoke about hell. John spoke about hell in the book of Revelation. Read from, from, uh, ver from chapter 6 through chapter 20 or chapter 19 in the book of Revelation and you'll see hell highlighted over and over and over. So we know for certain that that third option that Jesus died for everyone resulting in everyone being saved is out. So that leaves us with two options. Either Jesus' death was not an actual atonement, but a possible atonement, or Jesus' death was an actual atonement for elect people. Now, atonement means to cover sin, to pay for sin, to make us one with God. Let me say it this way. Either Jesus' death was a hypothetical salvation 
for those who might believe or Jesus' death was an actual atonement by those he chose before the foundation of the world. J.I. Packer writes this in his excellent, and I just cannot highlight enough, his excellent essay, his introductory essay to John Owen's book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. If I were to suggest that anyone read anything on this subject, I would say read J.I. Packer's introduction to that book. If, if you do that, you're going you're gonna to understand the debate and the history. The Death of Death and the Death of Christ is by John Owen, but J.I. Packer's introduction to that book, get it. It's actually online. You can Google it and find it pretty easily. He says this, Christ did not win a hypothetical salvation for hypothetical believers, a mere possibility of salvation for anyone who might possibly believe, but a real salvation for a chosen people. His precious blood really does save us all. The intended effects of his self-offering do in fact follow just because the cross was what it was. Its saving power does not depend on faith being added to it. Its saving power is such that faith flows from it, end quote. Do you know how often you affirm this when you sing? Have you listened to the theology that you sing quite often? One of my favorite hymns, one of our church's favorite hymns, you sing definite atonement with vigor so often. Do you remember it? Crown him with many crowns. Verse three, crown him the Lord of life who triumphed o'er the grave, who rose victorious to the strife for those he came to save. Do you hear it? Absolute, incredibly rich theology. So the critical question to answer is this. Did Christ die for the possibility that someone might be saved? Or did Christ die specifically for people whom he chose and predestined before the foundation of the world? Because that's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 4 to 6. Well, instead of theorizing about that question, let's go to the scripture and go to understand that this doctrine is taught. So as I said, forget that up there for a second. As I said a minute ago, we, we looked at, the, at the, the quizzing of this doctrine, trying to understand the distortion of it. Secondly, now we're gonna look at justifying the doctrine biblically. Justifying the doctrine biblically. Let's see if I can get us where we are. There we go. Just as for any doctrine in the church, we must look to Scripture for definition, justification, understanding, and explication. And for way too many people on this subject, the issues quickly deteriorate into speculation and emotions rather than solid exegesis. I've told you over and over, let me highlight again, that you have to be very, very careful when you come to a verse and two words creep into your exegesis. Well, I know the Bible says that and the church council and the creeds and the commentary and says this. Now, those can be helpful, but they don't have authority. But one of the bigger problems is when we say, oh, I know that verse says that, but that's not what it means. 
That's an absolute direct attack on what we call the perspicuity, the clarity of God. We are attributing to God that he has a speech impediment and he didn't really mean what he said, but we can certainly help him out, the poor old senile grandfather in heaven and kind of clarify what he messed up. Please be careful adding any but after a passage. What does the Bible say to this issue? Well, I want you to listen carefully to these passages and take them at face value. Also understand the context of these passages as well. Because if something is unclear in a passage, it's almost always clarified by the context of that passage. Consider with me some significant nuances in soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. And we're gonna, this is like going to theology class for the next few minutes, okay? First of all, think about redemption. Buying back. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for as written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Notice that Paul didn't say, Christ redeemed us, didn't redeem us, redeemed a possible people, redeemed us. He actually bought an identical group of people who believe from the curse. Revelation chapter five, verse nine, John writes, and they sing a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Once you have bought something and you've purchased it and you have a receipt, you don't speak anymore about the possibility of getting that thing, do you? You've already bought it. And John says, believers were purchased, past tense, by the blood of the Lamb. Think about reconciliation. Being an enmity, an enemy with God and having that resolved and becoming God's friend. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled, past tense, reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and has committed us to the word of reconciliation. That's interesting because he says we've been reconciled as those chosen by God, but he also offers to the world a reconciliation, but they haven't been reconciled yet because we have to go offer reconciliation to them. Do you hear that? There's a reconciliation offered to the elect. We don't know who they are, but we have that ministry and we go share the gospel with it. But the key phrase there is he reconciled us, past tense. Not the possibility, but the actuality. And then the word atonement or covering for sin. Hebrews 2.17, therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brethren, people, in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is to pay the punishment for someone. The very definition of paying the penalty for someone, propitiation, cannot be applied to universalism or possibility because it's an actual transaction. So it means that it was applied to those who God chose. The point is simply this. 
when we look at these verses together, it is clear that Jesus' death did not merely make salvation possible, but it actually saved people. But who? Who did his choice and predestination save? Isaiah 53, verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people whom the stroke was due. In other words, there was a specific people that God identified as mine for whom Jesus died. Matthew one twenty one. The angel said, she, Mary, will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save not all people, not some people, not a few people, not a lot of people, not I will save, he will save his people from their sins. Now, some might say, well, that's the Jews. Well, the Jews rejected him. His people are those whom he was given as we find out in John chapter 10. Why don't you turn over to John 10 for a moment because this is critical real estate in this, this subject, in this debate. John chapter 10. John ten twenty four. The Jews then gathered around him, ever debating him, Jesus, and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus says to them, I told you, and you do not believe. Oh, there's so much theology in that. Evidence was laid out in Jesus' person and even Jesus' teaching before the cross even that he was indeed the promised Messiah. His promise included that he would go to Jerusalem, he would suffer, he would be flogged, he would die, he would rise from the dead. He told them all that and they did not believe. Now he talks about his, his actions. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. If you would just look at me, you would know the truth. But you do not believe. Why? Because you are not of my sheep. Who are they? My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. We'll come back to that in the perseverance of the saints. My Father, verse 29, who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. Doubly secure in Jesus' hand and in the Father. So much here. First of all, if you, like me, especially when I first encountered this doctrine, you get all torn up and anxious about this, like, well, if God chose some and didn't choose all, and I am dead and I can't do anything, I, and I want to be chosen, what do I do? What's this text tell, tell you? You hear his voice and you follow him. You believe the opposite of verse 25. You listen to Jesus' voice, you see his life, you know his narrative, you believe the theology about him in the New Testament, and you believe, if you believe, you have heard the shepherd's voice. 
But look at verse 29. My Father who has given them to me. You understand that every believer, think about this. Every believer is a gift from God the Father. A gift from God the Father to the Son. If you've heard his voice, if you've believed the gospel, you are God's gift to his son. Luke 168 says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Then I love the high priestly prayer. You're already in John. Go over to John chapter 17. John 17. Verse one, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. This is just hours before his crucifixion, before his um, arrest rather. The hour has come, glorify your son that the son may glorify you even as you have given him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Is that clear? Believers are gifts from God the Father to the Son to believe. It's down to verse nine. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now you put all that scripture in the equation, it's very simple. God has chosen a group of people to be his. This group of people he has given to the son. The son has received them and purchased them by dying for their sins. If Jesus had died for the sins of everyone who ever lived, then everyone would go to heaven. The precious work of Jesus on that Roman cross was not a hypothetical possible salvation for a hypothetical possible group of believers. It was a definite, definitive salvation for God's chosen people that he chose before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4, and that he predestined in Ephesians 1.5. Now that could be perceived as simple enough but it's not because people always raise their hand and say, but you didn't include some other verses. So let me let her see here. Answer some key objections, okay? Answer some key objections. What about the passages that seem to teach that God has a will to save everyone? That's the first question everyone asks. For example, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32. God said, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies declares the Lord, therefore repent and live. People say, see, God doesn't have any pleasure in people dying in the context here, being judged afterwards, going to hell. Therefore repent and live. But he wouldn't say repent and live unless the possibility of them dying and going to hell was real. This only says that God, God's pleasure is accented in salvation over judgment. I love that about our God. And the fact that Ezekiel speaks of this kind of death proves the point that such judgment is real. In other words, it dispels universalism. What about the text that others kind of always bring up? Every conversation I've ever had with someone who knows their Bible goes here. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 4. First of all, listen to the context. 
First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. So the context here is pray for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may be lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dig- dignity. So he's saying pray for all men that they can come to faith in Christ and that will help us all live a peaceful and tranquil life. This is good, verse 3, and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, you may have heard people say something like this. All means, this is what I heard it in when I was in high school. All means all, and that's all all means. But no one, that's just, it's just not true biblically. It's not true in your own life. If I said all of you are invited, all right, let me say it this way. All are invited tonight to our congregational meeting at five. Do I mean the people in Ethiopia and Africa? Do I mean the people in Greece and in Rome? Of course not. All always is, con, is, is confined contextually to the context. If I said, we're having all over to our house for dinner. But that followed, the singles group is coming over to our house in a few weeks to have dinner at our house. Everyone's welcome. All and everyone doesn't mean everyone in the world, does it? All is always controlled by a context. How about this one? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I got news for you. I ain't going to play for the NBA. That's not part of the all things that I could do through Christ who strengthens me. So all has to be conditioned. What does all mean here? He wants all to come to the knowledge of the truth. He wants all men to be saved. All is conditioned by kings who are in authority. I think it's best to interpret and apply this verse just as Calvin and Augustine understood it. Namely, God is saving people from all categories of life. Even kings, as unlikely as that might seem. He desires all men to be saved. Now, if you want to really press it, of course it's in God's saving nature. But man has significantly, significantly disqualified permanently himself by stiff-arming him because of his sinful nature from birth. 2 Peter 3.9, people often ask about this. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, who is any? Any has to be qualified just as all does. If you look in the context, any here is of the elect. He doesn't wish for any of the elect to perish. John Owen helps us here. Listen to what Owen says. Who are these of whom Peter speaks? The term he writes, such as had been received, such who had received great and precious promises in chapter 1, verse 4, whom he calls beloved in chapter 3, verse 1, whom he opposeth to the scoffers of the last days in verse 3, to whom the Lord has respect in the disposal of these days who are, being, who are said to be elect, Matthew 24, 22. Then he says this, Now truly to argue that God would have none of those perish, but all to have come to repentance. Therefore he hath the same will and mind towards all and everyone in the world, even those whom he never makes known his will or calls to repentance. He says that's madness and folly. 
because if God truly desired for every man to be saved and they weren't and they're not, then God is not omnipotent. He can't do what he wants. Psalm 115 says he does whatever he pleases. That does not contradict where he says that he desires for all, for any, not to perish, but to come to repentance. I think the context there is any of his own, his chosen ones. In other words, this verse is not talking about the salvation of everyone, but only of the elect. Now, those are simple, actually, to answer because the context does. The big boogeyman of limited atonement is always pointed to in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. That's the one everyone hangs their hat on who are Arminian in their persuasion. 1 John 2, 2. Let me read you the first two verses. John says, My little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Wow. Does that kind of answer the question? I mean, is that a slam dunk against limited atonement or definite atonement? Well, the context again will help us here. Would it make sense for John to say that he's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world and then also go on to tell us these things if you keep reading uh, 1 John? Christ bore the wrath of God against everybody in chapter 2-2 and is an advocate to intercede for everybody in chapter 2-1. But then a few chapters later, he talks about the unpardonable sin in 5-16. Of course not. He's speaking of believers. He actually says this. Listen to 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. He tells you not even to pray for these people. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God, and it will be for him, and he will for him give life to those who commit the sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. He's actually talking about our prayers there. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. He surely knows who his beloved are. You say, well, what does it mean then? He, he's a propitiation for our sins and not ours, but those for the whole world. Well, I think what he's, what he's doing here is very much aided by our friend John Calvin who probably spent more time in this subject than anyone in, in our lifetime. He said this, just follow his logic here on 1 John 2.2. 2. Here a question may be raised, how have the sins of the whole world been expiated, propitiated for, paid for? I pass by the dodges, dotages of the fanatics who understand this pretense to extend salvation to all the reprobate and therefore to Satan himself. In other words, if you say, this is me, not Calvin, if you say he died for the sins, propitiated for the sins of the whole world, that would include every unbeliever and even the devil and the demons. If you have that unqualified. Such a monstrous thing deserves no refutation, Calvin says. The design of John was no other than to make this benefit common to the whole church. 
Then under the word all or whole, he does not include the reprobate, unbeliever, but designates those who should believe as well as those who were scattered throughout various parts of the world. For then is really made evident, as it's meet, the grace of Christ when it is declared to be the only true salvation of the world, end quote. You know what he's saying? When John says he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not only ours, but those of the whole world, it's those in the whole world, no one has propitiation except through Jesus. Exclusivity, not comprehensive nature. Because as much as people want to push back that and say, see, he died for the sins of the whole world, press that issue, then what does that mean? If he died for the sins of the whole world, then the whole world will go to heaven. And we're told that the whole world doesn't. So it cannot mean an absolute salvation granted and applied to everyone in the world. Or that makes his death, are you ready for this? Ineffective for some. Again, the doctrine of sovereign grace which includes election and predestination, will always be distorted without the accompanying doctrines of God's goodness and man's sinfulness. Look, I know the consternation it puts in your heart to say, well, if he chose some, he didn't choose other, and, and that's not fair, and what, I hope he chose me, and you get into this, this mind warp, and then it starts what uh, Horatius Bonner says, it makes you begin to question the character of God. You're suspicious that he's good. I think this is resolved in my own heart pastorally. It gives me both resolution intellectually, as much as I can. It gives me peace. It gives me confidence and hope as much as any other passage is what Peter says about this. If you turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter deals with this head on and coming to him, Jesus, as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Speaking of the incarnation, the death of Christ. But you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ, through Jesus Christ. Verse six, for this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. Ah, verse seven, verse seven. This precious value then is for you who believe. Can I just tell you that the, the best translation of that Greek phrase I think is found in the King James Bible? Let me read you the King James translation of that verse seven. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. If you believe he's precious to you and believing in him is because you identify him as Precious. What a great description of a Christian. It's someone who considers Jesus precious in who he is and what he taught and what he did and how he loves. But, verse seven, for those who disbelieve the stone which the builders rejected, 
This became the very cornerstone. Notice he's not talking yet about election, predestination, uh, uh, before the foundation of the world. He's talking about belief and disbelief. Belief and disbelief. You hear the tension there? Those who disbelieve, the stone reject, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, instead of building the life on it, they trip over Christ. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, human responsibility. And to this they were also appointed. Now I know some people say there's reprobation, there's double predestination. That's not what it's saying. This disobedience here is unbelief in the gospel and they were appointed to the judgment that comes from that. Peter is not saying that they were appointed by God to disobey and to unbelief. I think he's saying that these unbelievers were appointed to doom because of their disobedience, because of their unbelief. Judgment on unbelief is as divinely appointed as salvation and reward in heaven is by faith. You say, my mind is still melting. Peter doesn't give us any color. He goes straight to comfort. Verse nine, but... There's those who disbelieve, those who have rejected Christ, those who will have an appointed doom, but, but you, but you, in opposition to those who disbelieve, those who do believe, but you are a chosen race. Here's our chosen word again. A royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for God's own possession. These are the affectionate terms of Israel's choice by God now applied to the affection of God to believers in Christ. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's our purpose. We can tell people that we believe in the grace and promise of salvation. And then he goes back to our past, verse 10, for you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God, my people who were chosen before the foundation of the world. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Why does this matter? Why should it matter? Because the doctrine of being chosen and having your sins paid for gives you purpose and consolation and peace. It's a truth we must preach to ourselves all the time. If you're a believer, if you believe, if you have placed your faith and trust in Christ, there is no threat in this world that can rob you of true, true internal peace, satisfaction, hope. I know the world can crash around you. I know you can lose almost everything that looks precious in this world. But to those who believe, Peter said, to those who believe, he is the most precious thing If you're not a believer, your prerogative is not to see if you're chosen. The challenge, the command is believe. Believe. Put your faith and hope in Christ. What's the takeaway from this doctrine? Christ's death meant something. It wasn't a possibility. It wasn't a hypothetical. 
and it meant covering and atonement for the sins of those who will believe.